connecting connectors bent. So you all want to know that, don't you? <laughs> Pastor wants to be as professional as possible, and he's up here popping and pinging and looking at all sorts of things. But um, okay, let's see if we can recover. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Jude. And uh, I invite you to stand to honor the word of God and God who wrote his word to us as I read for you verses 14 through 16. Jude, verses 14 through 16. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. So ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I'm simply trying to find my... I came up with glasses, didn't I? Who put them there? Oh, and I can see, okay. We have spent several weeks dealing with the character, this, uh, the, the, the deception and the destruction of apostates. We have noted that apostates seek to promote their own agendas regardless of the cost. And as they do so, Jude reminds us that they disrupt the doctrine and the unity of any given church in which they're found. In fact, that's their goal, to undermine and disrupt the doctrine and the unity of the church. Jude's letter reveals that he was not only aware of the presence of apostates, those who had abandoned the truth, those who had uh, failed to contend earnestly for the faith, as Jude calls true believers to do back in verse 3, But more importantly, Jude points out the clear and present danger such false teachers are to the church. And even while it appears that apostates are making inroads in the church, Jude is keen on this particular point that their deeds and their doctrines do not go unnoticed by the Lord and that the Lord will bring them to their demise in his time. They stand certain of assured judgment that all who refuse the bow to knee, the knee to Christ, who deny Jesus as the only master and Lord, will be punished. As Jude reveals, the apostates of his day, along with all who follow their ungodly teachings and behaviors, they have a divine appointment at which time they will be eternally condemned for their sin. And what is this condemnation? The condemnation is to be eternally separated from the goodness of God, from the bliss of God, and to suffer the wrath of God as punishment in an eternal hell. Heavy stuff. Beloved, the days in which we find ourselves are filled still yet with such apostates. Those who have not only rejected the doctrines of sin and salvation and the sovereignty of God and the like, but also the biblical teaching of the divine judgment that awaits those who have denied and stand against the Lord. 
Sadly, many churches never hear biblical messages anymore concerning the subject of hell and of judgment. And because I could not say it any better, consider the words of John MacArthur regarding this matter. He wrote this, Hell is certainly not a popular concept in Western society. In an age of tolerance and acceptance, the topic of eternal punishment is taboo. The very mention of it is considered unloving. After all, postmodern culture believes that everyone is basically good and expects that life after death, if the afterlife even exists, includes heaven for all but the most evil of people. Of course, such a sentiment fails to recognize that all have sinned and all are evil. MacArthur goes on to say, sadly, the political correctness and doctrinal ambiguity that characterizes the world has also permeated the church. Even among those who call themselves evangelical, hell is regarded as a theological embarrassment. Passages that teach eternal destruction are often explained away, arbitrarily softened, or ignored altogether. As a result, society's erroneous views about God's judgment are only reinforced. Well, I stand here today and I tell you I will not be ashamed of the gospel. I will not be ashamed of the teaching of Jesus Christ concerning hell as the, the deserved and just punishment for all those who refuse to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. In both secular culture then, and even among a growing number of evangelicals, there is this denial of the reality of the judgment of hell. Even some men that you might know by name have rejected the thought of an eternal place of punishment in, terms, uh, in favor of a term such as annihilationism, that God just vanishes them. They just disappear. There's no eternal torment of hell. Let me remind you that when our Lord Jesus Christ walked this earth, earth preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, he preached repentance as well, but he also devoted much of his teaching to this subject of hell. In Matthew 5, in what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made these rather startling statements, if you consider them correctly, with reference to uh, the sin of of disparaging anger. So how many of you have ever been angry before? Anybody? Okay. If you hold on to that, Jesus makes this statement about holding on to anger. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says bringing this anger to its full fruition, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go where? Into the fiery hell. Now, honestly, just think about that for a moment. Go tell somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus, wait, anger's going to get me thrown into a fiery hell? Yes. Christ or God did not create you to be an angry person. He created you to experience what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Later in the same passage, we read that hell is a place that eternally consumes a bod the body of a person. Jesus says in Matthew 5.30, If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. 
For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So this is some kind of bodily experience that never ends. The most dramatic depiction of hell given by our Lord Jesus is found in the account of the rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16, 22 through 26, hear the word of the Lord. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham, Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here will not be able, and that none may cross over from us, from, from there to us. The point is that hell or Hades is a place of conscious awareness of eternal torment, and it's reserved for those who have denied and have rejected the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostates that Jude speaks of are those who deny the Lord Jesus quite actively, quite determinedly, quite intentionally. There are those who reject Christ seemingly passively. It does not matter. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is the place that awaits you. This is what you deserve according to the scriptures. This is why the author of Hebrews is so impassioned against uh, not only those who would deny Christ, but especially those who are apostates and false teachers, those who would claim to represent Christ and yet willfully damage the message of the gospel to the end that souls are eternally lost that such will receive the severest of judgments. Hear what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. He writes, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And he ends with these words. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Beloved, this is the assured judgment of apostates. And in Jude 14 through 16, we find Jude stating the same truths, the same realities, the same end for those who reject Christ. Each one of these three verses reveals uh, a different aspect, and we'll, let me just tell you them, and then we'll look at them one by one. We'll see in verse 14 that their doom is revealed. 
We'll see in verse 15 that their destiny is reserved. And we'll see in verse 16 that their deeds are reproved. And so with that, let us consider what Jude has to say of this assured judgment of the apostates by noting their first point here, their doom revealed. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> what an interesting verse. You just kind of set back and go, okay, this will be interesting. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Initially, it may not strike us as odd that Jude would speak of the doom of apostates as having been foretold, that it's been previously revealed in the scriptures. But Jude does something quite extraordinary. He does not simply take us back to the Old Testament per se. He takes us all the way back, all the way back in the Old Testament. He takes us to the very beginning. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude is giving now to us an original revelation that not even Moses had access to when he wrote the book of Genesis. An insight into an incident then that is nowhere else recorded in scripture. That ought to strike us as marvelous. You are reading something that Moses never wrote. Maybe he heard it, but he never wrote it down in the book of Genesis for us. Some suppose that Jude is quoting here from an apocryphal book. There's a book called the book of Enoch which does have a reference to this phrase as found in verse 14, that the coming of the Lord would be with many thousands of his holy ones. However, Jude has more to say than what's found in the book of Enoch, and rather than suspect that he essentially is misquoting a non-canonical book, it is better to see that Jude's statement is coming directly from the Holy Spirit to him, and that whatever was written in the book of Enoch was somehow uh, simply tra tra uh, passed down through oral tradition and is why it's not accurate, uh, it's not completely accurate, uh, but now we have the accurate account given to us by Jude. Rather than depend upon those oral traditions of the Jews, what they had remembered about Enoch and compiled in that book of Enoch, Jude gives us precisely what took place and precisely what Enoch said by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Jude is writing about, if you see in verse 14, these men. Who are these men? Or if you keep it in context, these are the men that he's already described previously in the verses above. These are those men he described as hidden reefs in your love feast when you, they feast with you without fear, caring only for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars, and here's the judgment, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Beloved, by appealing to the Old Testament character of Enoch, Jude takes us back to consider events from the earliest days of humanity. What is striking is that Jude is speaking of end-time events, and we're at the beginning of the Bible. He speaks uh, of what we would refer to as eschatology, the study of future things. He's taking us back to the beginning to tell us, Jude's taking us back to the beginning to tell us something about the future that is yet to come. 
He takes us back beyond the apostolic age. He takes us back beyond the teachings of Jesus. He takes us back beyond the writings of the prophets, beyond the days of David, beyond the times of the judges, beyond the days of Moses, beyond the time of even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even before, beloved, the very incident at the Tower of Babel. He takes us further back than the flood itself. Jude carries his readers to the days of Enoch, and he is passing over not only the apostates of his own day, he passes over the apostates of Israel, which climaxed with the murder of the Messiah. He passes over the, the apostasy of the people in the days, uh, people of Israel in the days of the Babylonian exile. He passes over the apostasies that brought about the destruction of the tribes of Israel. He passes over the apostasy of Israel in the wilderness, of the apostasy of Nimrod. Jude, with laser point accuracy, brings us to a great apostasy when angels sinned and Enoch, a lone prophet of God, raised his voice that now continues to speak to our day. Enoch who lived during the horrific conditions that were present about him in the antediluvian world before the flood had something to communicate to his generation and something that would speak to generations to come. Jude refers to Enoch, if you notice in our text, as in the seventh generation from Adam. If you were to look at Genesis chapter 5, you would note that that's exactly what we find. We find these men... Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, and seventh from Adam is Enoch. And I threw Methuselah up there because we're going to make mention of him in just a moment. Now, it's interesting to me that there are, we're not into numerology, but there are significant numbers in the Bible, and seven is one of those numbers. And it may well be that part of this issue here is to, to represent uh, the seventh from Adam is being symbolic. The first six generations listed in Genesis 5 depict something remarkable. If you read the account, those first six men died. The Bible says every one of them died. They they were born, they lived to a certain age before they had children, they had a certain child, and then they died. Of each of those first six men noted, they lived again that X number of years and then passed on. But what happens to Enoch? This is the one of the seventh generation. We read in Genesis 5 that he becomes the father of Methuselah, which we will see is important in a moment. But then in verse 24 of Genesis 5, we read this, that then Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch doesn't die. Enoch is taken up. Enoch pictures, in part for us, God taking up his people. We just finished 1 Thessalonians a few months ago, and we read of an event where the Lord takes up his people, where they walk with God, and then they are not, because God takes them up. We call that the rapture of the church. Now stay with me. Enoch, according to Jude, was a prophet. He's a prophet of God, probably not the first one you would think of naming as a prophet. Not only do we have the prophecy that is before us here in the book of Jude, but even the name that is given to his own son, Methuselah, he names his son Methuselah, is prophetic 
It it foretold the judgment that was coming in his own day. The name Methuselah means after this, judgment shall come. Now, you may recognize Methuselah and that name because he lived longer than any other man in recorded history, 969 years. And then, Genesis 5 said, he died. And as soon as he died, the flood came. So Enoch was a prophet in his own day. We see it from Genesis 5. He foretold the judgment that was going to come. And we have the statement now of Jude, Jude revealing in our text that Enoch saw beyond his own day and he looks to the judgment of all apostasy, but he notices the apostasy that is around him. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, a familiar verse to many of us, we read this. Uh, that God, the Lord, saw the, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's a definition of an apostate. He lived in an apostate culture. He saw as well the end times of the coming of the Lord. We know that the first prophecy of the Bible is found in Genesis 3.15. In fact, Chris taught on that last week. He brought that to our mind when, when the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise or crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the prophecy that God uh, gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. And this prophecy speaks of both the first and the second comings of Christ in his crucifixion as being described by him being bruised on the heel, which would be his crucifixion. But then at the second coming, when he would do what? He would crush the head of the serpent. Enoch not only believed that prophecy, he had heard that prophecy, but now in our text we find he's plumbing the depths of that and he's expanding on the second coming aspects as we read in our text the statement of Jude 14. Here's what he prophesied. These are the words of the prophet of God, the man named Enoch. He says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Now, there's more, but we'll stop there. Enoch is looking beyond his own day to another apostate age. Now, it must be said that like other Old Testament prophets, Enoch had no vision or information concerning the church age. Therefore, he ignores the rapture of the church about which he knew nothing because it was not the direct subject of the Old Testament revelation at the time. Rather, he concentrates on the return of Christ at the very end of the age, While Enoch's being taken up by God is a clear picture of the rapture of the church, as we just noted, Enoch's prophecy does not appear to envision the the saints, uh, the holy ones. The word holy ones here in Jude 14 appears to point to angels who come with Jesus to judge the earth in the last days. In other words, in the New Testament passages, we find often that when Jesus returns, uh, we may not think much of it but he's always said well not always but most of the time he said to be returning with angels around him let me point that out Matthew 25 verse 31 but when the son of man comes in his glory what does it say and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne we finished not too long ago the book of second Thessalonians and in second Thessalonians 1 7 we read uh, that and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. 
beloved Enoch prophesied of the coming doom of apostates at the hands of Jesus and his many holy ones some 4,000 years ago. Not only had God dramatically revealed uh, how he dealt with the apostates of Enoch's day by means of the flood, but he's going to demonstrate the dramatic fashion that when he comes again, it will be with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, many of Jude's original readers would have been immediately struck by what had been revealed as God's purpose so long ago. But here Jude says, behold, I need you to consider, look carefully, the Lord came. Now, Enoch's prophecy is so shockingly assured. Some of you might be thinking, but it says he came as though it's past tense. The Bible does this often when something is so certain to come to pass, it's written in terms of having already come to pass. Jesus in his high priestly prayer, before he's ever gone to the cross, says, I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. The Apostle Paul, when speaking of the certainty of our glorification with Jesus Christ, says that those who are justified were called, those who were, uh, those who were called were justified, those who were justified were sanctified, those who were sanctified were glorified. I don't know about you, I didn't wake up feeling really glorified. But it's so certain to come to pass that, that the, the biblical authors will write it in this kind of context. And so when it says that the Lord came with his mighty angels, with his holy ones, the idea is that it is so certain to come to pass that he can use the past tense to demonstrate its certainty. Jude's use of the prophecy of Enoch is intended to remind his readers that Christ is coming. It's intended to tell both believers to rejoice at his coming and to be a warning to unbelievers, you better repent. So believers rejoice. It's a call for unbelievers to repent. Even as apostates were a present influence prior to the flood, there will be yet godly men who are always looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's what what Enoch was doing. It would come 2,000 years before the first coming of Christ, and yet Enoch was already looking beyond the second coming when he would come to judge the earth. Beloved, these then are the words, again, of both comfort and warning. Apostates are indeed a clear and present danger in the church, but we need to remind apostates that they are in a clear and present danger from the judgment that awaits them. The wicked will not reign forever on this earth. That which is twisted, that which is immoral, that which is evil, that which is horrific will be made right. All who have denied God's grace God's mercy and God's salvation from their sin through Jesus Christ will face his wrath. And this is where verse 15 begins to inform us of what exactly his purpose is for these apostates when Christ returns. And this brings us to our second point, their destiny revealed. Verse 15, and to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know, I like to always say, if an author says something once in the Bible, that should be sufficient. If he says something twice, you better really listen. If he says it three times, uh, hold on to your hat. What do we have here? Four times the mention of 
this is something that will happen to all the ungodly. Beloved, God has a plan. And when the Lord Jesus returns to earth, his plan is to fully and finally deal with all sin. And there are three distinct considerations here. And the first one is that their destiny is declared. We read that Christ will come to execute judgment. Notice what it says. Upon all, upon all who are what? Ungodly. Does the believer need to be concerned about judgment? No, because judgment is coming upon the ungodly. We do not fear condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are heavy and sobering words then to execute judgment upon the ungodly. Christ will execute judgment. The phrase carries the idea of making or doing something thoroughly. To execute means to of making or doing something thoroughly, completely, in every detail. And in this case, the making or bringing about is of a full and final judgment, a condemnation and a punishment upon those who have rejected Christ. Although apostates have relentlessly continued throughout the generations, the day is coming when they will be justly rewarded for their evil deeds. Beloved, the word of God reminds us that sin in any word, any thought, or any deed is that which misses the mark of God's holy standard and that it must be atoned. It must be paid for. It must have a remedy. On the cross, we learn that Jesus paid that debt of sin for all who would trust him and that he did this for them and for all who would come to him for forgiveness of sin and find newness of life. Those who deny Christ will stand before God and they will eternally give an account for their sin. When all who deny Christ stand before God, all their sin will be revealed. And not one person will be able to say, no, I didn't do that. As Jeremiah 17.10 declares, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. What are your deeds? What do your deeds deserve? There's only one remedy for us, folks, and that is to stand on the deed of one. To stand on the work of one. That if I were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to ask me the question, why should I let you into my heaven? It will not be for me to say, because I've done more good things than bad. Well, because you're just kind-hearted enough to let me in, even though I'm an evil, evil rotten scoundrel. No, it will be that I've placed all my hope and all my trust on the finished work of Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Now, some may be thinking, but my deeds are not that bad. Surely I've not done that much that is bad, especially in comparison to others, and that should be to God sufficient. Until you recognize that the standard, beloved, is perfection. Jesus said, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Those words make me stop dead in my tracks. Anyone who heard those words uttered from the mouth of Jesus should have said, Lord, have mercy on us. Because who could stand 
in that standard. The standard is perfection. Oh, but people do some good, do they not? Well, what does God think of what you perceive as good? In Isaiah 64, 6, we read, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, whatever you think they might be, are like what? A filthy, putrid, bloody garment rag. And all of us wither like a leaf. You can go outside and see some of that happening right now. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Romans 3.10 through 12 reminds us of the same thing as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There are none who understand. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Those words should be a wake-up call. And even if you're saved, it should cause you to rejoice that you know that it's not based on what your hands have done, but what Christ has accomplished. And if you do not know Christ today, those words are a warning to you. You are not righteous, and you need a remedy. All of our so-called righteous deeds, again, like that rotting, putrid, blood-infested garment, each of us, each one of us guilty of not being good, not even one. And if we have not believed in Christ, being found in him with his perfect righteousness, we will be judged according to every single thing we've said, every single thing we've done. It will all be exposed. In Revelation 20, verse 12, we read of this judgment. John writes, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, so it doesn't matter, rich or poor, great or small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Every single thing you've ever done will be given an account for before the Lord by you unless you have had those deeds covered by the blood of Christ. In Revelation twenty-two twelve, 12, we read what is said by the Lord Jesus there as a warning. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what? What he has done. And the only thing that you need to be able to answer this morning would be, the thing that I have done, called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. In that day, the words of Psalm 130, verse 3, will be fulfilled. If you, Yahweh, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? And the answer is, not even one. The better answer for you this morning, not even me. But the next verse says something wonderful. But there is forgiveness with you. There is a remedy to this. Apostates, those who have fallen away from the Lord, those who have rejected Christ, today is the day of salvation. There is forgiveness available to to you. There's forgiveness in the Son of God 
in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope of being rescued from our sins. Will you believe upon him? Will you trust in him this day for what he has done on the cross? Will you call upon him to save you? Will you call upon him to change you, to cover you with his perfect righteousness? Beloved, the destiny of all those who have rejected Christ is eternal punishment. This is the destiny declared. There will be an execution of judgment, but there's more. Their destiny is also defined. Jude writes that Christ will also not just execute judgment, but convict all the ungodly. Notice all the ungodly. Not one is left out. The word convict means literally to convince or to prove wrong. Some of us think that's a spiritual gift to prove somebody else wrong. But the word means to convince or to prove wrong, to expose something as being wrong, to rebuke something for being wrong. While Lord deniers deceive others, the Lord is not deceived by their deceptive ways. While they have sought to outwardly be seen as those who desire the things of God, they're somehow good people, they have sought inwardly to defeat and destroy not only their own faith, but the faith of others. When Christ comes, he will expose them for what they really are. As we noted before in that day, there will be no argument. There will be no apology, no defense to defuse the wrath of God. The Lord will prove to them, convict them of all their sinful ways, and then pronounces the judgment. As the prophetic words of Numbers 32.23 declares, And be sure your sins will find you out. I don't care if you're a believer or an unbeliever today, aren't those sobering words. Your sins will find you out. And what of the sobering truth of Ecclesiastes 12, 14, that says this, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. What are you hiding? I don't want to be embarrassed if somebody were to actually see this, so I'm just going to hide it. God already sees it. God's being merciful right now to give you the opportunity to seek forgiveness from him. If that doesn't cause you self-examination to be certain that you have you are found as being in Christ, possessing his perfect righteousness rather than left to yourself and to your own righteousness, consider the words of Luke 12:2 where Jesus said, but there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Those things, those sins that you think no one else knows, those sins that you think no one else will know, they will be revealed. They will be proved before you as being wrong. They will be demonstrated in God's divine court. Here's exhibit A, and this is why you deserve eternal punishment and unless you are certain that you can honestly declare again in that moment that your hope is built on nothing less than the blood of Christ and his righteousness you're doomed so their destiny is declared their their, it is defined and finally their destiny is deserved maybe you're thinking well, this is just isn't fair well let's let's consider it it says in our text to consider judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly and then this list of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
Remember that all of this is a prophecy. This is a prophecy of, of Enoch. This is what the Lord had spoke to the people through Enoch. Let, let us remember that the God we serve is just and right in all of his ways. Here we learn that the apostates will face the wrath of God and that it's abundantly deserved. Beloved, if any of us got what we deserved, we would all be in hell. But the apostates are those who have denied the Lord in his ways, and these will stand before God to receive their just rewards, which is eternal punishment. But why is it deserved? Well, let's notice two things. First, their ungodly disposition. Jude first points out, he says, that they're being convicted of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. They have an ungodly disposition, an ungodly bent, a sinful nature that directs their deeds, that motivates them. The word deed speaks of one's business or employment, their, their actions and their deeds. It's what they're busy about. Those who deny Christ have as their desire to live as lavishly as possible and promote ungodliness such people stand opposed to what is righteous filling their lives with sinful lust we see such ungodly dispositions all around us do we not we live in a culture in a day that does little to suppress the desires of the flesh anything that you can conceive of it, it's really anything goes now everybody is doing what we could see back in the book days of the judges everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes except if you're going to tell people that what they're doing is not right, then you're, you're the one that's wrong. We live in a time where most anything ungodly, anything unholy, anything even that's less than human is being propagated and celebrated. We live in a culture that is rejecting God's moral code. We truly are living in a Romans 1, 18 through 32 culture which ends with these words in Romans 1.32, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is an ungodly disposition. Do you possess an ungodly disposition? But there's a second statement here. They have their unyielding defiance. Their unyielding defiance. Notice that Jude points out, and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, against the Lord. The apostate is one who is not content to personally reject the grace and mercy and call of God. Rather, he or she stands in unyielding defiance against all that is holy and all that is godly. Such a person uses their influence to create disbelief, to create doubt or encourage rebellion against God among those around them. Such a person's words and actions reveal really that of hate and insurrection towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And we live in interesting times, do we not? You turn on your TV or listen to the radio or you read some magazine article and you are immediately inundated with the culture's propaganda. I read just the other day that the average uh, uh, the average church-going child who is sent to public school will have 15,000 hours of indoctrination in an ungodly culture. And parents wonder why sending their kids to Sunday school for one hour out of the, uh, of the week is not sufficient to combat the 15,000 hours of propaganda that the children are facing. 
propaganda runs in politics, it runs in our social media, it runs those who own the stores and, and such we shop in, and they are all adamantly opposed to who? The Lord and his church. Such persons are not satisfied with their own personal rejection of Christ and his ways. They vomit their poison and their hate to all who will hear. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And yet so many blaspheme that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. They have committed, they are committed to this defiance. Well, we've seen their doom revealed. We've seen their destiny reserved. And finally, let us note their deeds are reproved. Their deeds reproved. Jude writes in verse 16 that these are, he describes them, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So he closes with these descriptions, and this is really the, a close of something that began all the way back up in verse 5. He closed by identifying these apostates by the fruit that they bear. What did Jesus say? You will know them by their fruits, right? Their deeds will reveal them. And let's note what these deeds are. There are four of them here. And we note first their attitude. Their, their attitude. They are marked by being, and we're going to take these first two, as being grumblers and finding fault. Kind of a mixed translation there. The King James says that they are murmurers and complainers. Fault finders are complainers. They complain about, they find reasons to complain. Do you, do you know people that find reasons to complain? Like, it's not just about, you know, how are you doing? Well, you know, and they just launch into all the reasons why everything's wrong. It's because they're not focused upon what's right. Because even if all they have is the salvation of Jesus Christ, that should be sufficient for the true believer. One of the attitudes of apostates is that they are those who tend to complain against God. How do they complain against God? They complain against his providence. Uh, I don't know why I'm in this situation. Why would God do this to me? Why would God do this to people? They're generally complaining about what they do not have in life. These are those who blame others for their lot in life. I would be so much better off if it wasn't for this person or that person. It is the, the, cre uh, the cry of victimhood. I've been a victim all my life. I get to be like this. I get to be miserable. And I get something because I've been a victim. These are the grumblers and the fault finders. These are those who are who discontentedly complain against God and complain against their lot in life. Such persons refuse to rejoice in the blessings and the goodness of God. They feel that they've been neglected. They feel like they've been abandoned, but it's because they're looking to the wrong person because the Lord will not, uh, Jesus said, I will not turn away the one who comes to me. For those who deny Christ and his teachings, there, there's never enough. That's because the only th way there will ever be enough for you is if you are found in the one who is everything, and that's Jesus Christ. These people are never fully pleased, can never be satisfied. They're unable to find contentment or joy in their circumstances because that's all they have. Perhaps you have been around such a person, one who never seems to be pleased or happy. For them... What they have in front of them is never good enough. The believer in Christ is ready to admit that God has been so good to him, that God has been blessing, has blessed him beyond anything that he could 
imagine and anything he deserves. The believer in Christ knows that even if God were never to bring another blessing into his life other than that of his salvation, it would be more than enough and more than delightful. That's the attitude. Well, let's look next at their activity. Jude says that their activity is that they are following after their own lust. This is their course of life. The pursuit of, let me just tell you what this is. It is the pursuit of the temporal. It is the the pursuit of earthly things. There is no regard for that which is truly good and truly holy and truly eternal. The goal of those who deny Christ is not to seek eternal things, but to satisfy their own selfish, fleshly desires regardless of the cost. They may feign lip service to the cares and needs of others, but ultimately they're concerned only for their own good and their well-being. So I have sought to warn you, while you may not be an apostate, I pray that we don't have a bunch of apostates in here, it is possible to pick up the philosophy and the actions of apostates. Such a selfish pursuit of personal well-being is most prevalent in the church today, in our culture and in the church Too many are determined to satisfy themselves at all costs and place little to no restraints on how they would obtain that goal. Such a way of thinking has crept in unnoticed, uh, as Judah said, into the church. Increasingly, there are those who are willing to lay aside, uh, there are few who are willingly uh, willing to lay aside their personal wants for the ways of God and the good of the church. And so I ask you this morning, what are you investing in? I have said that there are only three things that last forever, three things that you ought to concern yourself with because they last forever. One is God. Two is the word of God is said to last forever. And the third one is people. Everyone in this room, believer or not, will be forever. So what are you investing in? You should be investing yourself in those three entities. Know God. Know his word and tell other people about Christ. Next, we see not only their activity is for themselves, we see their arrogance. It says they speak arrogantly. And the idea here is speaking of great and swelling words. They make themselves sound lofty and sophisticated and educated. They are the know-it-alls. You know those people? The know-it-alls. And and it's so interesting when you have a conversation with an unbeliever who thinks who is a know-it-all because they usually think that you're the know-it-all. You think you're so high and holy because you preach a a gospel, and they think that it's all foolishness, right? They're the ones that are the arrogant ones, not considering these truths. They boast in proud, swelling words, Jude says, in order to promote themselves. They come off at times as being spiritual. They come off as being so intellectual. They come off sometimes saying, I'm committed to the Lord. You just don't understand what the Lord's all about, like a particular governor who will misquote scripture to support abortion. But inside they are cold, shallow, and empty of truth. They live their lives as actors putting on a show for others. They are, in the words of Jesus, whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Finally, we see their agenda. It says they flatter, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. 
And here the idea is literally telling other people what they want to hear so that you can manipulate them to provide for your own advantage, your own personal gain. None of us have ever tried to do that, right? The, the, this is the art, though, of the apostate, deceiving others, making them think that they are being blessed when, in fact, they are being manipulated in order to fulfill the apostate's desire. Beloved, we must check our own motives. When you interact with others, is it ultimately to gain your own benefit, or are you willing to sacrifice for the well-being of others? We may sometimes run into such persons, those this, this is all about me kind of people. When you come across them, proceed with caution. We're not called together as a church, or we, we are not called together as a church uh, in order to first get something. Did you know that? And when you come here today, your first goal, your first calling is not, what can I get? And we need to eliminate, that's an apostate thinking. I'm coming to church and I hope somebody will minister to me. I hope the pastor has a good message today. I hope the songs that we sing are the ones that I like. That's not why you come to church. We come first to give to God. We are sacrificing this time for the glory of God. We give our offerings and our very selves to the worship of God. Then we gather not for what we can get, but to give to others, to exercise our spiritual gifts for the well-being of others. Let me tell you this truth. No one ought to come to church. This is going to sound bad, okay? I want it to. No one ought to come to church in order to be blessed. What? Is that true? I tell you it is. We gather not to be blessed. We gather to bless God. We gather to worship God. We gather to bless others and to give ourselves to God and to one another. And then, if you do that, what happens? You get blessed. But if you're getting blessed but not giving of yourself, it's a shallow blessing for you. When you do that, the Lord overwhelmingly blesses you when you come to worship him and to give of yourself to him and to others. When you come to worship and bless the Lord, the Lord will bless you. But that agenda is foreign to an apostate. They're manipulating everything to be about them. So Jude 14 through 16 are sobering verses reminding us of a sure judgment to come and awaits for those who have such attitudes, activities, display such arrogance, and have such agendas. Again, what is the solution for this condition? It is repent. Repent and call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord for a renewed heart and a renewed mind that, that is enabled to love God and to serve God. For believers, let us be on the alert, recognizing that such thinking as being described here by Jude has crept into the church unnoticed. May we root it out. And where do we begin to root out such thinking? Make sure it's not here in yourself. May our prayer echo the sentiments of David who prayed these words in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, prove me, 
expose me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And once that's done, lead me in the everlasting way. Let the Lord search you and reveal to you any way in which you may have adopted an attitude of an apostate. Then ask him to remove it from you so that you may rightly worship him and be a blessing to his people. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the message this morning from Jude. We thank you for the depth and wonder of what this prophecy of Enoch means to us and for us. We pray, Father God, that beginning with ourselves, we would root out any hurtful way by bringing before you our very selves, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, that you would examine them, that you would expose us to us, those things where we may be going down a wrong path, a hurtful path. Father God, we pray that this would lead us to trust you more, depend upon you more, to be better enabled to be used by you, to be a light to people, to be a light to the nations, to those around us, that we would be those who do not proclaim a false gospel, that those who, who present Christianity in a, in a rotten light, but, Father, that we'd be those who truly let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Father, we pray for those who need to come to Christ. I pray, Father God, that your spirit would prick their hearts and conscience, that you would help them to recognize that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. May they get this worked out. Would you call them to yourself and have them cry out and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Father, we thank you that you've given us this commission then to know your word and to make it known, to know you and to make you known. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. May that be our desire, we pray in Jesus' name.